tonight we're going to deal with understanding the rapture. Uh, my wife is uh, down, I think, in the youth. I don't think I see her. Uh, she's down, well, is that Lisa coming in right there? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> now, I'll tell you anyway. She said, she said I'm going to, I may be down with the youth uh, tonight, and if you don't see me, I'll, I'll be with the youth. I said, okay. She said, I guess I'll miss the rapture. <laughs> I said, well, baby, I sure hope not. <laughs> and so that's the big question for all of us. When will the rapture occur? Will Christians have to endure the tribulation that's coming at the end of the world, or will we escape it? Now, if, I know that if I take a vote, I know how the vote's going to go, right? We all want to miss the tribulation. But that's the question we're going to be wrestling with tonight. Will Christians miss the tribulation? Or will we have to endure what's coming? So, we're just going to jump right into that. And I'll, I'll say to you that your answer to that question, will we go through the tribulation or not, or, or how much of the tribulation that we, will we go through, your answer to that question largely depends on how you interpret Revelation 4.1. So open your Bibles to Revelation 4.1. I, I know that I've told you that we're going to try to go a chapter at a time through Revelation. But when we come to this particular verse, it's necessary for us to pause because this verse really helps to set the context for the rest of the book. Revelation 4 ushers us into the third division of the book. You say, well, what third division? Well, go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19 real quickly just to remind you of what we've talked about. You talk to me a little bit tonight. See if you can help me. What are the three divisions found in Revelation 119? Talk to me. All right, all right. I hear some mumbling, so let me help you. What you've seen, what is now, what will take place later? Thank you. All right. Really, Revelation one nineteen is kind of the golden key for understanding what this book is about. What you have seen refers to Revelation chapter one, the vision of Christ. What what is now refers to Revelation two and three, the letters to the seven churches, what we might call the church age. And what will take place later, this refers to Revelations. 4 through 22, uh, how the world will come to an end. And so as we begin this study tonight, we're really beginning this third and last division of the book. Now, it's the longest division of the book by far, but, but Revelation chapter 4 is a turning point. It's the third and final section or division of the book, and I just want to go ahead and tell you right now, we're heading out into deep waters, we're going to be in deep waters for a while. But uh, tonight, we, we start out to the deep waters. Uh, now, I want to also say this. You need to know that good and godly people disagree on how this verse should be interpreted. Uh, some very scholarly people will see it one way. Others will see it another. Some see in this verse an, an illustration of the rapture of the church. And some do not in Revelation 4.1. Uh, so here's the important point. The way that you interpret Revelation 4.1 will largely determine how you interpret the rest of the book. So let's read this verse. 
see what, what is so important about it. In fact, we're actually going to read two verses, verses 1 and 2. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and with someone sitting on it. Now, next week, Lord willing, when we get into this, we're going to talk about chapter 4, maybe 4 and 5, but definitely chapter 4, and this whole concept of the throne, because the concept of the throne dominates Revelation chapter 4. I think it's used something like 11 or 12 times in, in these uh, 11 verses. So it's going to be good next week as we talk about the throne of God. Because I'm about to get off into it, aren't I? Uh, but, but the throne of God shows who's in charge ultimately. The throne of God shows who's in charge of the end of the world. So I know I'm about to, I need to just back off because I'm about to start into that. Uh, but, but let me go back to verse 1 because this is such a key verse. Look what he says. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, some people say that John was just having a vision, and God was, was simply illustrating, was going to show him what would be happening through the rest of the book of Revelation. Others say, no, there's something more here, that, that this really is a picture of what's going to happen to all Christians. It's an illustration, if you will of what's going to happen to all Christians. Before we get into that, let me give you three key terms that might help us better understand what we're going to be discussing tonight. Uh, and you probably know these terms, but I wanted to make sure that I gave you uh, a lot of content tonight that you can refer back to. So here's what I tried to do. I've tried to give you most of the information except for the scriptures. And my, my goal is that you in this set side section would write down those scripture references, okay? Uh, so... Let's, let's look into these three key terms. Again, you've got most of the information there on your notes, but you might want to jot some things down as we go along. First of all, the term rapture. The word rapture is not used in the Bible. It's not found in the Bible. You can do a, a word search all you want, but it's not found in the Bible. Uh, but the fact that the word does not appear in the Bible shouldn't alarm you too much. There are several words that we use and refer to in in uh, our theology that are not found in the Bible. The most prominent of those is the word Trinity. Do you believe in the Trinity? I hope you do. The word Trinity is not found in Scripture either. But the concept of the Trinity is clearly taught in Scripture, isn't it? You can see the concept of, of the Trinity throughout the Bible. The word rapture is like that as well. The word rapture is not found in the Bible, but it, it is derived from the Latin Vulgate version of 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Latin Vulgate version was the Latin translation of the uh, of the Bible, and, and and I want you to read First Thessalonians four seventeen. We're going to use our Bibles a lot tonight, so uh, I hope that you've got them and can quickly turn with me. First Thessalonians four seventeen. After that, we who are still alive and are, le and, and are left will be, what's those next two words? Called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Called up together with them 
in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That, that phrase, caught up, is translated in the Latin Vulgate, but with the Latin word rapturo. And that's where we get our word rapture from. Let me give you a definition. I think I've put it there on your notes. Uh, the definition of, of rapture is Christians who are living at the time of Christ's return will be translated or, or called up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, now this is what you, if you've watched any of the, uh, what was those, Left Behind. You've seen this concept, haven't you? Where uh, people are flying in an airplane, all of a sudden the pilot's gone, and, and half the passengers are gone, and, and cars are wrecking, and, and, and the lady looks, and, and her husband's no longer laying in bed because there's been a rapture. There's been this called up where Christians are, are suddenly removed from, from this world. So that's what we're talking about. Christians who are living at the time of Christ's return will be called up to meet the Lord in the air. That's the word rapture. Sudden removal is what we're talking about from this world. Now, the word second coming is another term that's important. The time when Christ comes back to to this earth to set up his millennial kingdom. I'll tell you something. Regardless of how you interpret rapture, and we'll get into that, it is undeniable that Jesus Christ is coming back. There is going to be a second coming. In fact, the angel announced that, that just like you saw him leave, so he will return. The second coming is not debatable, ladies and gentlemen. The second coming is going to happen just as he said it would. So the second coming is the time when Christ comes back to the earth. This time he comes back to set up his millennial kingdom. And we'll talk about that later on in the book of Revelation. And then the word tribulation, this is the word we all want to deal with. The word tribulation is a time of intense persecution and terror and turmoil led by the Antichrist, and it will be worldwide. A worldwide time of terror and turmoil and tribulation. According to, you might want to write this down in the side there. According to Daniel 9, 26, 27, it will last for seven years. This time of tribulation will be at a period of seven years. Three and a half years will be relatively calm. And the next three and a half years will be what we refer to as the great tribulation. So the great tribulation will be the most hideous, evil, torturous time this world has ever known. Think about it in these terms. The wrath of hell will be unleashed during that time. It's, it's going to be awful. Now, as men and women study the prophecies concerning that time, various theories were developed regarding whether or not Christians will experience that. And thus we come to the theories of the rapture. And the theories of the rapture deal with the question, will we be here during the tribulation? Will Christians be a part of, will we experience, will we have to endure the tribulation that certainly is coming? And so three major theories have been developed trying to explain whether or not we will be here. And I just want to go through those with you quickly before we dig into them. First of all, the pre-tribulation. Of course, adding the word pre to the word tribulation indicates that Christ's return uh, that Christ will return to, to rapture the church before the tribulation begins. I like that one. Everybody in favor of that one? Christ returns before the tribulation begins. That's pre-tribulation. Of course, the word mid-tribulation indicates that the church will be raptured 
midway through or halfway through the tribulation. This theory states that we will go through half the tribulation and then we will exit before it gets worse. And then, of course, post-tribulation indicates that Christ will return for his church after the tribulation. That's the one I don't like. Well, I don't like the mid very well, but, but I really don't like this one. I really don't, don't like that one at all. So which one is it? And I'm going to ask that question and answer it for you at the end of this study tonight. Which one is it? We're going to get to that question because I know that's what you really want to know. Before we get to that question, we need to dig in and understand each of these theories because each of these theories have biblical support. Now that's what gets confusing. We can go through the Bible and make a case for each one of these. So these are not theories like, well, Keith thinks it's this way, and this Keith thinks it's that way, and Charles thinks it's another way. We're not talking about what men think. We're talking about what does the Bible say, and we can biblically make a case for each of these, which makes it quite confusing. So let's dig in and see if we can make a case for all three of these, and then we'll ask and hopefully answer the question, which one is it? So, let's talk about the arguments for the pre-tribulation rapture theory. Are you with me? If you're with me, say, let's go. All right. I didn't mean let's leave, okay? (laughs) All right, pre-tribulation rapture theory. It teaches that Christ can come at any time to take away his church. Now, that's key, that he could come at any time to take away his church. The church will be raptured, then the great tribulation will occur Uh, And so this is the the pre-tribulation rapture theory. So let me give you some arguments for it. I think I've given you about six. Uh, Let me walk you through those. First of all, here's the first reason that some people believe in this this, uh, pre-tribulation rapture. Number one, in the sequence of events, John is called up to heaven before the tribulation period. That is, when you go through Revelation and you start looking at Revelation, just the chapters, what's happening in each chapter. When you get to chapter 4, verse 1, it's as if things change. It's as if there's a transition here. It's as if there's an important moment in Revelation 4, 1. Let me explain to you what I'm talking about. In chapters 2 and 3, we see the church age. The church is talked about, and and then in chapters 4 and 5, John is called up to heaven. And in chapter 6, the tribulation period begins. Some see in that that John is illustrating what will happen to God's people when the church age has run its course. That really chapter 4, verse 1 is an illustration of what's going to happen not just to John, but what will happen to all of us. That we will all be called up into heaven prior to the tribulation. In other words, those who subscribe to this theory say that John was simply illustrating what was going to happen to everyone Because he was called up into heaven. And he was called up into heaven before the tribulation is written about or prophesied. All right? Go to chapter 3 of Revelation, chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 10. Let me show you the verse that's interesting. Chapter 3, verse 10 of Revelation. Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. 
Jesus seems to indicate, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to remove you from this time before this hour of trial. All right, so that's one of the arguments for the theory. Number two, the absence of any mention of the church in the rest of Revelation. Uh, indicating the church is not present on the earth during the time of tribulation. It's very interesting. Write this down on, on your, the sidebar there. The church is mentioned, the word church is mentioned 19 times in, in chapters 1 through 3, but is never mentioned after chapter 4, in chapters 4 through 18, which are the, the chapters that describe the tribulation. Let me say that again. I didn't say it really well. In, in chapters 2 and 3, the church is mentioned, or chapters 1, 2, and 3, the church is mentioned 19 times, but it's never mentioned in chapters 4 through 18, which are the chapters that deal with the tribulation. The only other time you see the word church is one time after chapter 4, verse 1. So in other words, why is the church not written about? When you're writing about Revelation, when, when John is describing the Revelation, why, is he, why does he talk about the church? Those who subscribe to this theory would say it's because the church won't be there. The church won't experience that. Number three, the similarity between Revelation 4, 1 and 2, which we just read, and 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 18, and both scriptures, I'm not going to read them both, but both scriptures talk about being caught up in the air with the Lord. Both scriptures indicate that there is a time when, when Jesus is coming back and Called up, to, called up in the air with the Lord. So it's the similarity between those scriptures. Number four, the tribulation is God's appointed time when he will pour out his wrath on the ungodliness of the world. And the Bible promises that God is not going to pour out his wrath on his own children. I th- think you really need to give this some serious consideration. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Somebody read for me, if you would, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Somebody's not going to do it, so anybody do it. All right? What translation is that? What? Oh, NLT. thought you said MLT. I thought, I don't know that one. Mandy's Living Translation. All right. All right, somebody else. Give me, read that same verse in another translation. King James. Jesus who will deliver us from the wrath to come. Uh, Somebody read it from the NIV. Yeah. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now go to chapter 5, same book, chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting. There's a principle in the Bible you need to be aware of. And the principle is this. Before God pours out His judgment, He takes out His own people. 
You'll see that throughout the Bible. Before God pours out his judgment, he takes out his people. For example, before God poured out his judgment with the flood, he took out his child, his people, Noah, uh, and put them in the ark. Look in Luke chapter 16, verse 26. Luke chapter 16, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you agree. Let's see, I'm, am I in the right? Luke 17, Luke 17, verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Now, that's an interesting statement just by itself. Just like it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Well, what was it like? Verse 27, people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up till the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. So Noah entered the ark, then the flood came. God has this principle of removing his people from this judgment before, so they won't experience it. Uh, Lot is another example. God first took Lot out of Sodom, then he poured out his wrath on Sodom. Look in Luke chapter 17, verse 28 through 30. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Those who hold to this view would say that Christians may experience some days of tribulation and that God will indeed chastise his people, but God's not going to pour out his wrath on his people. And that's why they say we will be taken before the tribulation takes place. Now, the fifth thing that, as far as arguments for the pre-tribulation rapture theory, the fifth one is this, the emphasis in the Bible that the Lord's return is imminent. Go to Matthew 24 and write this down on your notes. This is a key scripture. Matthew 24, verse 36 and verses 42 through 44. I'll give that to you again. Matthew 24, verses 36 and then verses 42 through 44. Matthew 24, verse 36 says this. No one knows about that day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Then skip down to verse 42. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have kept his house to be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, those who subscribe to this theory would say, listen, if we have to go through half the rapture or, I mean, the half the tribulation or through all the tribulation, then th- it'd be hard to understand the scripture. Because we could all say, no, he's not coming back yet. The tribulation hasn't happened. And no, 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 he's not coming back this week because we've got to go through half the tribulation or we've got to go through all seven years of the tribulation. Now, he can't come back yet because we haven't experienced the tribulation. So that's the reason some people say, well, we've got a problem if you look at this scripture. Because the scripture clearly says that God's return is imminent. 
Look in First Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine. Nine and ten, actually. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Christians are always to be watching for the Lord, the Bible says. We're never told to watch for the tribulation. We're told to watch for the Lord. Because the Bible seems to indicate, it seems to emphasize that the Lord's return is, is imminent. And we should, be, we should be watching and ready for the Lord's return. And so if you just take that one piece of the puzzle and look at, at the big picture, it would be okay. Then it has to be a pre-tribulation rapture because otherwise, how do you experience the mid-trib or the post-trib and have the Lord's return imminent? Does that make sense? All right, let's go to number six as far as uh, arguments for pre-trib rapture theory. Number six, I like this one personally. Number six is this. The Holy Spirit is restraining the Antichrist and must be removed from this world before the Antichrist can reign. Before the Antichrist can come and, and cause all the problems that he intends to cause, the Holy Spirit has to be removed. Now, here's the question. Since the Holy Spirit lives in us, how will the Holy Spirit be removed? It would seem that the only way the Holy Spirit could be removed is if we are removed. Does that make sense? Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. There is evil happening in our world already. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back, referring to the Holy Spirit, will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless, lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. I'll tell you something. The Antichrist, Satan, all, all the, they can't do a thing till God gives them permission. And the Bible says very clearly here that the Holy Spirit is restraining the Antichrist and must be removed from the world before the Antichrist can, can come onto the world stage and in order for that to happen, for the Holy Spirit to be removed, it would appear we would have to be removed. So those are some of the arguments for the pre-trib rapture theory. And so if you want to, we can just call it today and say, hey, that was good. I, I like that one. Let's stay with that one. And then we're ready to go home and feel good about it, right? But, but, I can also make a biblical case for the mid-tribulation rapture uh, Christians this this theory says that Christians will be raptured halfway through the seven-year period referred to in Daniel 9 uh, there's three and a half years of apparent peace then there's the rapture and then three and a half years of the great tribulation 
there are some arguments for this theory, some biblical arguments for this theory. Here they are. Number one, the Bible says that the world will appear to be at peace during this time. Look, look at First Thessalonians. I told you we're going to be all over the Bible. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse three. I'll tell you what, let's go to verse 1. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The world will appear to be at peace. There will appear to be a time of peace, and when everyone is at peace, uh, the Lord says, then I will be here. Second argument for this theory. Jesus indicated that we would see the desecration of the temple. This is an interesting argument. It goes back to Matthew 24. We're going to stay in Matthew 24 for a while. Go back to Matthew 24. Jesus made a statement that's hard for us to, to reconcile with the pre-trib theory. Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place, the temple, the abomination that causes desolation, which is a reference to Daniel 9.27, uh, 9, when you see standing in the holy place, the temple, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Jesus seems to indicate that that there will be people here that will experience that, that will see that, that they will see this prophecy from Daniel fulfilled. Number three, arguments for this theory, for the mid-trib theory. There will be great days of distress that will be cut short, according to Matthew 24. Uh, again, this is an interesting scripture. Matthew 24, go to verse 21 and 22. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world till now, and never to be equaled again. That, that this is going to be a time of tribulation unlike anything the world has ever known. Verse 22. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive for the sake of the elect. For those, Let me try again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. But for the sake of the who? The elect. Those days will be shortened. In other words, that we would not experience the full breadth of those, breadth of those days. Those days would be shortened. Could that be a reference to the fact that instead of the seven years that those days were shortened, and we only experienced the first three and a half years uh, before we're taken to heaven? I'll give you number four. Biblical arguments for the mid-trib. Jesus said that, that there would be false Christ and false prophets that would perform signs and miracles in an, in an attempt to deceive even the elect. Matthew 24, verse 23. Look what he says. 23 and 24. At that time, anyone who says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. 
For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. So he's talking about as if the elect are there, isn't he? That during this time, the elect could be deceived, or, or at least there will be this attempt to deceive even the elect by these false Christs and false prophets. And then number five, Christ will gather the elect after these things occur. Look in Matthew 24, verse 30. Look what Jesus said, 30 and 31. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect. That's us. From the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, of course, there are different ways to interpret Matthew 24, but, but those who subscribe to the mid-tribulation theory lean on Matthew 24 pretty heavily to say there is a case to be made that we may go through at least half of the tribulation and then we will be removed uh, before the full wrath is outpoured. So we could kind of go home and say, okay, I don't, I don't like the second one, but I'm okay with it, you know, to some degree, because I know I don't have to experience the whole thing. I really like the first one because I'm going to get out before it starts. But then there's this third one. And the third one is called the what? The post-tribulation rapture theory. Indicating, this theory indicating that we will go through, I'm going to say it again, we will go through the tribulation. Let me pause for a minute before we get into the discussion of this one. This is every parent's greatest fear, isn't it? You don't want your children to go through the tribulation. You don't want to go through it, but you certainly don't want your children to go through it. You don't want your grandchildren to have to go through the tribulation. When we start reading about later in the book of Revelation. What it's going to be like. You don't want anybody to have. You, especially those that you love. Your children. Your family. I've had discussions with people in the past. Where they said. Pastor we're trying, whether, we're trying to decide whether or not to have kids. And the whole issue is. We don't want to bring them into this world. And have them go through this. We believe this world is getting worse. We believe this world is coming to an end. We believe that the tribulation is coming. And we don't want to bring children into this world and have them go through this awful tribulation. Be better if they weren't even born. I've had that discussion with people. So is there a biblical case to be made that we will go through the tribulation? Indeed, there is. Let me, let me give you four or five things here. Uh, I think four. Number one, the Bible is clear that in both the Old and New Testament times, believers in God have always been persecuted for their faith. So why should we escape a persecution at the end of times? That's a pretty good question, really. Through all, I mean, when you read the Old Testament, 
uh, read the book of Daniel, just for one example. When you read the book of Daniel, that, that those who were faithful to God experienced persecution. They experienced what we would call tribulation. They, they experienced what it was like to be thrown into the fire. They experienced what it was like to go to the lion's den. They were not removed from that before it happened. All through the Old Testament, there are examples like that. In the New Testament, every one of the apostles were martyred, except for John, who wrote this as an exile. He was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And there's other examples of Stephen being stoned for his faith. I mean, who are we to think we're supposed to get out of this? Who are we to think, because we're Christians, that God's somehow going to take us away from it? Now, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to make the case for this particular theory. And one of the suggestions, one of the arguments is that the Bible clearly shows in both the Old and the New Testament that believers are persecuted. So why should we think that we're going to be different? Here's a second argument. Jesus seems to imply in Matthew 24 that the believers will enter the tribulation period. I know we've been in Matthew 24 a lot, but... Since my Bible is open there, I'm going to read for you verse, verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, and I've read that to you, he said that that's when you can begin looking for it. Verse 21, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. Jesus seems to imply that believers will enter that time. Now whether or not we exit that time at the end of it or halfway through it, again, that's up for debate. But Jesus seems to imply in Matthew 24 that there will be a tribulation in our future. A third piece of evidence is this. I want you to really think about this one. Why do we have warnings about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and all of those kind of things if the church will not be around when it occurs? That's a good question. Why did God record all of these warnings about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast if we're not going to be here? Huh? Lukewarm Christians, okay, possibly. Let, let's right. Right, right. Go to Second Thessalonians. We're, we're getting out of Matthew now. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. Now that's a pretty forthright statement. The, he, here's, read that again. 
Verse 3, do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Go to Revelation 13. Revelation chapter 13, verse 16 through 18. This is one we'll dig into, I'm sure, when we get there. But it says, He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So the question is, why do we have these warnings about the Antichrist? Why do we have these warnings about the mark of the beast if the church won't be here when all of this occurs? Now, there, there could be another answer to that question, but I'm just trying to give you the, the arguments for this theory. Number four, the final one is this. If the church is raptured between chapters 3 and 4 of Revelation, as is kind of described in, you know, that after chapter 4, the church is not mentioned. It's, a, it's an illustration that the church was raptured, the church is taken out. If the church is raptured between chapters 3 and 4 of Revelation, who are the saints that are mentioned in chapter 13, 16, 17, and 18? I told you the church is not mentioned, but saints are mentioned. We don't have the time to read those references but I've listed them for you. But I want to get to the question that I know this, the one that you really want to, uh, to answer is this one. So which one is it? Which one? And, and I'm not going to I'm going to point you to Scripture. I'm not just going to, you know, which one is it? Which, which, which is the one? And I, I just want to take a vote right now before I point you to Scripture. First one, how many believe in the pre-trib rapture? Raise your hand. Hold it up, hold it up, hold it up. All right? I thought that'd be majority. How many believe in the mid-trib? All right? Scattering. How many believe in the post-trib? That we'll go through the whole thing. All right? A few of you do. All right? So which is it? We're not all right. Somebody's got to be wrong. Well, it's all three. Oh, I hope not. (laughs) All right. Here's the answer. Huh? Uh huh. Right. 
right? Yeah. So that that's why you say that the elect or the uh, or the saints are mentioned in other places. Okay. All right, write this scripture down. Write this scripture down. Here's your answer. Okay? You ready? Now, now I'm not fooling. This is the answer. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Mark 13, verse 32 says this. No one knows about that day or hour. We just wasted an hour, didn't we? <laughs> Listen, no, no. No, you didn't waste an hour, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Listen to this. Here it is. No one knows about that day or hour, not even Dr. Shorter. That's not what it says, is it? No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven. Do what? I mean, if, anybody, if anybody's kind of close to God, angels ought to know these things, right? And the Bible says, no. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Whoa, wait a minute. That's not right. Right? I mean, I mean, if anybody knows about that time, it ought to be Jesus. Right? I mean, he's pretty instrumental in this whole thing. He's kind of a key figure. Regardless of, of how it's going to unfold, he's kind of a key figure in this deal. Right? So if anybody knows when it's going to happen, it ought to be Jesus. And... and Jesus said in this text, No one knows about that day or that hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The reason I bring this up to you is, I told you next Sunday, I think it's going to be really good because we're going to be talking about the throne. Guess who's sitting on the throne? The Father. He's in charge of it all. And if you look on your notes, real carefully, if you look on your notes, I was, I was careful to put this. Arguments for the pre-tribulation rapture. What's that last word? Theory. And the mid-tribulation? Theory. And the post-tribulation? Theory. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. You did not waste an hour tonight, number one, because you hopefully understand a little bit better about the different arguments. But number two, I hope you also understand this. God's in charge. And when we read through Revelation, and we start digging into what's going to happen, how's it going to happen, and when's it going to happen, when we start elevating ourselves and say, I got it figured out and I know it, then I think you're setting yourself up for pride and to be misled. Because only the Father is in charge. Only God knows. For the rest of us, it's all theory. Is it important to talk about theory? Yes. Is it important to discuss these ideas? Yes. Is it important for us to dig into these things? Yes. You say, well, Keith, aren't you concerned? Aren't you worried? What if we do have to go through the tribulation? What, or even if we only have to go through part of it? 
What if we do have to go through? Aren't you concerned for you and your family? Aren't you afraid of what might happen? I'm going to be real honest with you. Concerned? Yes. As I said earlier, no parent wants their children to go through that. No husband wants his wife to experience that. And I don't ever want to have to face the decision of, do we take the mark or do we eat? Do I watch my family starve to death or do we eat? Nobody wants to have to experience that. Nobody wants to go through Am I concerned? Yes. Am I afraid? No, not really. Honestly, I'm not. Because when I read Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, At once, John said, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And here's what I want you to understand today. God's still sitting on it. And I hope to goodness you'll be back next Sunday night. We're going to talk about the throne. Because everything else that scares us to death in Revelation should not scare us that much when we understand He is still sitting on the throne. And He is in charge. And everything else is just theory. Amen? I know somebody's going to come up and ask me later, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Some days I lean toward the pre-trib. And some days when I read Scripture, I think it's going to be mid-trip. And some days I decide, even so, come Lord Jesus. Father, thank You that You've told us ahead of time, though we don't fully understand what it's all going to be or when it's going to be, You've told us ahead of time and You have reminded us that ultimately You're in charge and You're on the throne. You are Lord and You are God. And history is in your hands. And may we serve you, the creator and the center of our universe. In Christ's name I pray, amen.